I only gave you six words near a tree by a river. We had about, what is it, 16 pages of text. An extraordinary response. Many got it right. A lot of people said, was it Stairway to Heaven? <laughs> well, no, it wasn't Stairway to Heaven. But the person who we have chose uh, a person to come on and say who it was with us is Murray Sweetpants. Kia ora, Murray. What? Not there? Where is he? We'll try and get him very, very shortly. Anyway. It's uh, the lyrics are near a tree by a river. There's a hole in the ground where an old man of Aaron goes around and around, and his mind is a beacon in the veil of the night. Uh, do you know this song, David? No. You haven't, you haven't heard it at all. Afraid not. You're kidding. How come? Children. <laughs> Sue. Sue. Passes. Passes. Pass me by. <laughs> okay. That's blowing my mind more than actually anything else uh, I've heard today. That both Sue Kesley and uh, David Farah have not heard the riddle by Nick Kershaw, Murray Sweetpants. Hello, does that shock you? Wallace, that's, uh, that is astounding news. You know, I thought this was a high-quality panel program. <laughs> exactly. It turns out like, you've clearly got to readdress the kind of people you're inviting on the show. <laughs> Kia ora, Murray. Now, that. remind us, you're a, you're a DJ, aren't you? I am indeed. It's probably that's why I'd be disappointed if I didn't know the song. But yeah, that's what I, that's what I do. It's like I, I I listen to music for a living, and it's um and it, and it, and sometimes a lyric just stays with you. And weirdly enough, that Nick Kershaw riddle one is one of those ones that doesn't seem to make any sense. Yeah, the riddleness of it. But um yeah, just as soon as you said it, I was like, I know that song. And what 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 does it speak to a genius of a song where I can give you Murray Sweetpants six words near a tree by a river? I mean, that could be anything. It could really be anything, but I did test my wife just now when I got home and said, if I say these six words to you, what, what's the song? And then unfortunately, she started singing it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tune, isn't it, Murray? You'd know, you're a DJ. It's a great, great song. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it's, it's like a, it's an earworm for sure, I reckon. Yeah. Hey, now b- before you go, Murray, because you're a, you're one of the you're one of the you know the the, the, the great DGs in Tamaki Makoto. Um, word of advice to Sue Kesley and David Farah, who has, has never heard of this song. Is there any other song in your repertoire that they should know? They can go do a bit of homework this afternoon. Oh, I'm, I'm, I just found it, actually a, a friend released a song. Um, on Friday, a brand new one, a duet uh, of my a song is a lot, and that's a new one that should be all over the music video. Uh, the song is super catchy. It's, it's a great summertime tune. And um, what's it you know, called I'm again, Murray? What's it called? You dipped out. It's by Jewel D U A L D U A L Murray. Lovely to have you on the program. 
Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Very good. That's uh, Murray Sweetpants there. So, yeah, there you go. Nick Kershaw, The Riddle. It's based on, um, apparently, a deep metaphorical tale or idea which is shrouded by intricate symbolism. And um, Kershaw had been bombarded by fans who think they've solved the riddle of the song. And apparently there's no such thing uh, as any meaning. In fact, Nick Kershaw said in an interview, he described the song as being nonsense, rubbish bollocks, the confused ramblings of an 80s pop star. Anyway, thank you uh, for that. Anyway, it's 4.37. The panel, RNZ National, an appeal to lower the voting age to 16 has been accepted by New Zealand's highest court, but only Parliament can decide if the law will change. After failing in the High Court and the Court of Appeal, the Make It 16 group took their case to the Supreme Court earlier this year. National and ACT, they won't support it. Labour have downplayed it. Greens call it a massive win for uh, democracy. With us... Now is Sanyat Singh, the co-director of Make It 16. Sanyat, kia ora. Kia ora. Nice to be on. What a journey this has been for you. Tell us about being in that courtroom. It's been absolutely insane. Look, I wasn't, I wasn't in the courtroom. I was sitting at home with my devices off because I was so nervous. Um, but I got a call as soon as the judgment came. And I went absolutely crazy. It was such a moment for us. Three years of fighting and slogging, and this was a really great win. But there's still a lot more to do. Well, it could be history-defining here. I mean, you've really slogged away for a bit, Sonyad, you and your team, little your team there. Now, the government will draft legislation to lower the voting age to 16. Tell us the next steps. What happens next? The Prime Minister Ardern spoke about it this afternoon. Look, what happens next is this bill is going to be groundbreaking. It's going to be really important for us to do our best in terms of lobbying and rallying votes as soon as possible uh, before that parliamentary process starts, getting in those select committee rooms and making sure that we're getting as many submissions as po- uh, in and just consistently working across the country to build up that grassroots support so that more and more people buy into this idea what we've been trying to do since day one and it's been working so far well i'm not going to really to get the issue of the whys and why nots we've done that quite a bit on the panel as of other shows but uh, as i said you know in the court of public opinion Sonia, the jury will be out we did a panel mm-hmm. poll on this not long back and a slight majority on this show did not support lowering the age to 16 so for those who actually really think it's not a good idea what would you say to them Look, at the end of the day, when 16- and 17-year-olds go out to vote, all we're going to be having is just more voices in our democracy. You're not going to lose your house. You're not going to uh, have the world burning in front of you. Um, What you're going to have is a population of young people that are enthusiastic and engaged about the country that they live in, uh, enthusiastic and engaged about the country that they want to see in the future, Uh, And moreover, um, much more suited to engaging in debate and discourse in a way that's a lot more productive than what we currently have. So what I'd say to everyone that opposes this, that even if you don't agree, when a 16 and 17-year-old votes, it's not going to change your life, but it's going to be life-changing for them. Okay. David Farah. 
Well, look, firstly, congratulations on the victory. I mean, winning in the Supreme Court is a massive achievement, and you and your legal team and wider team should be really proud of that. Two, two questions. The first is talking about building the public support. My company carries a couple of polls on this over the last 12 months, and generally of people age dating and over, it is three to four to one against. So you've won the legal battle, but I would be interested to hear how you plan to win the popular vote battle. And the other question, it's a bit getting into the merits of it, but I just reflect that Parliament recently actually effectively lowered, say, raised the age at which you could marry. It used to be 16 with parents' consent, and now unless you get the family court to agree, you actually can't get married till you're 18 because they were worried and said 16, 17-year-olds can be coerced, they can be subject to family pressure, etc. And don't those same arguments perhaps apply to voting, that people who live at home can be vulnerable to, to voting in line with their family? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of things to dissect there, David. Um, I think the first thing around, you know, whether 16 and 17 year olds are vulnerable to coercion and uh, susceptible to voting in line with their parents, I'd say, you know, for the most part, a lot of people in New Zealand vote in line with what their family has been voting for. So voting in line with their parents is a very much expected thing. When it comes to coercion, though, I'd say it's not a reason to not lower the voting age as much as it is a reason to address the power structures that exist, which, you know, allow 16 and 17-year-olds to be coerced. But what I'd say the advantage is with 16 and 17-year-olds is that there is a distinct social infrastructure around them when they're in school, when they're in educational spaces, when they're surrounded by their peers, which would enable us, if we did intelligent and responsible policymaking, to make them much better suited to making decisions in a democratic context. Okay. Um, so, the- yeah, uh, well, a couple of points. One is that uh, if we're going to lower the voting age, and I have no problem with doing so, but we need politics and civics taught in schools. I mean, our voting system is quite complex, MMP, and we don't have it. It's 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 purely voluntary civics education, unlike in many countries in the world. So, I think that we do need kids would would need to be educated about our political system. But also, if you do the arithmetic thing, you've got to get 75% of parliament to have it passed into law if it's for uh, voting at the national election. doesn't. You're not going to get that if you've got national and act opposed. Whereas you only need 51% for uh, local elections. And already the local government review has recommended that. So wouldn't the li- obvious thing be to focus on the local election? And I just want to make the comment, didn't I hear that David Seymour said he, his op- opposition was he didn't think that people should be able to vote if they don't pay tax? So I take it that Act now has a policy that the unemployed or perhaps mothers who aren't paying for their hard work aren't to aren't to have votes. Stay there, Senat. Let's clarify. Let's clarify that, David. I think we're talking David Seymour, not Farah. I am talking David Seymour. Oh, got gotcha. you. Oh, yeah, I understand. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Senat, what will you say to uh, to both Sue and David there? I think it's a completely valid argument to make here that. Look, 51% of Parliament is required to lower the voting age for local elections. We have a strong recommendation from the future of local government review. Um, it's what other countries have done in preparation to lower it for 
more general elections, most recent example being Germany. I think it's the exact step that we're taking as a campaign to advocate and push for that. The new bill that's being introduced by uh, the government, um, that's what we're going to be advocating for on our end is, look, even if you're not going to allow us to hit the 75% mark, at least allow us to get that local election provision in there. Um, in terms of civics education, I think you're completely right. It's very disappointing that very consistently for the last few decades, we've not been able to prepare a generation of young people to engage in their democracy appropriately when other countries do it just fine. Exactly. All right, Sanat Kiora, um, congratulations on that win there uh, at the Supreme Court. Good to have you on the program. Sanat Singh, their co-director of Make It 16. Before we go on, can I just briefly go around the panel on this, needless to say, big response to that. Uh, and I think my producer, Yana, said this time round, we haven't done a poll today, there's slightly more people who... Uh, support lowering the voting age than against, which um, overturned the last um, time we did this uh, about three months ago. David Farah, uh, if you were to vote in Parliament, uh, how would you vote? I definitely would be voting against. Okay, Sue? Uh, well, I admire the passion of the younger generation. I have an incredible faith in them. But? So um, I would support it, providing that we had mandatory po- politics or civics, as you call it, education in schools. All right. The panel, RNZ National, 14 to 5. General Practice Owners Association, or GenPro, have launched a campaign to fix frontline family doctor services. They say they're dealing with underfunding staff shortages and increasing demands. It's putting pressure on the rest of the health system and it's impacting patients' health. Deputy Chair GenPro, Dr Angus Chambers, is with us. Dr Chambers, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace and panel. The campaign was initiated yesterday. Just tell us the nuts and bolts of it. Well, um, we've seen... uh Access to primary health care, the worst it's ever been in the last few months, and that's because of a number of factors coming together, but particularly around the workforces of GPs and nurses. Uh, it's become a less attractive uh, proposition for people uh, in their career choices. We've seen uh, people not being able to enrol right around the country. We've seen wait times of a minimum of a week, and I've heard recently of nine weeks' wait to get to see a GP. We think that this is uh, causing harm to patients. It's putting intolerable stress on the staff. It's ending up with a lot more people in the emergency department than should be, which is putting pressures there and, and potentially leading to harm. So we, we feel that uh, the time has come to to act rather than having endless reviews and workforce task forces and things like that. The the chairperson of Jim Pro sort of painted a pretty stark picture of his personal, you know, um, uh, sort of work timetable, saying, "Look, you know, he hasn't had an, a GP undisturbed Christmas holiday for fifteen years, you know, because uh, if you're involved in uh, uh, on call care, um, you'll get that phone call for you to come back. Holiday time is not an option." Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, the experience will be variable, but particularly in rural areas where um, staffing is really short on the ground and sometimes holiday makers swell populations uh, to a great, great degree, uh, that, that's definitely the case. And then I think when you, you know, we've got different sectors within general practice, but the urgent care community at the moment is particularly stressed with uh, uh, people not being able to get to their uh, GPs, so they come into urgent care, the wait lines are extremely, wait times are extremely long, 
and um, the staffing is really short. Right, this is a report titled On the Brink, uh, talking about the uh, urgent needs facing this particular sector. Sue, casually, your thoughts? Well, I wholeheartedly uh, support the GPs and good on them. They're getting, um, you know, launching postcards, a petition. You've got a whole campaign going. And obviously you've decided you need, you know, to do a major political campaign. I can't understand what is going on here because I was on uh, a Wellington District Health Board for nine years and our whole strategy was to use the hospital as a place of last resort, direct as much health care as possible into primary care, to build it up, to have it as the as, as you know the major place where indeed most people go. So I can't understand why would you only give a 3% increase in funding to primary care if that was your strategy? Because with the cost of living at 7%, inflation, it's effectively a cut. And why would you pay nurses less than those in the hospital? So I can't understand. Has this new health entity changed its strategy? Or what is going on here? Angus. Well, I think the the new health entity has uh, sucked an enormous amount of resource. I've heard between 500 and a billion dollars, uh, but more. They're spending so much time drawing up diagrams and, and advertising and then re- uh, taking ads away that there's paralysis in the system. People can't afford, can't, aren't allowed even in the hospital to buy relatively modest pieces of equipment because it requires... Uh, permission from high up that's not coming. I, I think there's a whole paralysis because of the reforms. So, I, you know, I couldn't agree more with what Sue Kesley just said. David Seymour. <laughs> David Ferry. Sorry, us. my goodness gracious <laughs> me. Oh, what a, who am I today? David, it could my, be worse if you confuse Sue with David Seymour. <laughs> my apologies. <laughs> In terms of increasing the GP workforce, it seems you, you either have to do it domestically or from internationally and I think it takes what 10 to 12 years if you increase the number of medical students to actually have them come through and be qualified as GPs so isn't one of the solutions obviously that we have to recruit more GPs from overseas and if that requires paying more making it easier for them to get in not having them to do so many months of competency tests even uh, to practice here is that the thing that would make the biggest difference? Um, well, look, I think the biggest difference would be retention. Let's retain the staff we've got already. That's actually our biggest, quickest win. So stop people from feeling, gosh, I'm going to go to Australia and double or triple my income. Uh, get those people who are actually thinking about retiring who are actually quite worn out to say, actually, it's worth my while staying on. So making general practice attractive, and that goes for our nursing force as well because we've had a lot of young nurses who are reasonably flexible head off to Australia because of the you know, significantly better conditions. So I think that's a number one. Yes, uh, uh, international um, recruitment is certainly um, uh, uh, useful, um, but I've heard that uh, inquiries have significantly dropped off recently because of very substantial offerings in Australia and Canada. So, uh, yes, that, that's right. a win, but um, I think we need a suite of measures. There's no one thing that's going to fix this, and some things are going to be long-term, and some things are short. Speaking of long-term, it's going to be... You're missing a 1,000 GPs from family practice. That's really significant. Look, absolutely it is, Wallace, and, um, you know, a few things that are relevant here, but first is that uh, the intake to the current uh, training programme for general practitioners, you know, the, there's been some... Um, 
uh, boosting of the numbers with great fanfare up to 300, but it's close to 50% are subscribed, so we're not going to get anywhere near those numbers because it's not attractive. Uh, uh, yeah, so that, that's a really significant thing. Uh, yeah, when you add in retirements and people leaving mid-career to either change specialties or head uh, to more attractive green pastures overseas, we're going to really struggle to increase the numbers. Dr. Angus Chambers there. Sorry, uh, uh, so we've no, got to move away. I was just um, going to say, I thought that um, the, yeah. there was a survey saying half of GPs were about to retire That's in right. within 10 years. That's so. right, yeah. Mm. Uh, Angus is the Deputy Chair of GMPRO. And look, if you are a uh, general practitioner, why don't you email me? It could be anonymous, it could be otherwise. And uh, uh, tell me what you're experiencing. Does this square with... Uh, how you are seeing things in your practice. Finally, uh, on the panel with David Farah uh, and Sue Kirchley, after Trump supporters stormed the Capitol in 2021, Twitter permanently suspended Donald Trump's Twitter, saying too much risk for further incitement to violence. Today, Twitter in Elon Musk's hands, Trump's back. Just last week, Trump launched his bid for presidency in 2024. So I checked and uh, Donald Trump hasn't um, made any tweets so far. But to discuss is futurist and chief executive at Guerrilla Technology, Paul Spain. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Wallace. Good to chat. Yeah, good to chat. Now, what what do you make of the poll mustard firstly? 15 million votes. It's a lot, isn't it? 51% in favour. I mean, how, how do you take it? How legitimate was it? Well, we've tend- tended to call these these online polls sort of you know straw polls, and yeah. uh, you know, look, it's 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 a little bit of a shocker because you know we we heard uh, from Musk that you know there was a particular process to go through for bringing people back onto the platform. Um, I guess you could call it replatforming, um, and we sort of expected that there was going to be this robust process, and uh, you know, next next minute we've got. Uh, um, Musk doing a Twitter poll and uh, and just reinstating uh, Trump like that, which has been quite fascinating to watch over the last the last day or so since it happened. I think when he came back on, he had yeah. around two million followers. I just looked uh, a minute ago, eighty seven point two million followers. So this is uh, hmm. probably around uh, you know twenty percent of of what they you know get in terms of active user base. Um, so there, there's certainly a demand by the, the looks of it of people to hear from Trump. Um, I hadn't checked that. That's, that's, that's actually coming back to, to, to Twitter. Paul, that's actually quite extraordinary in such a short space of time. So nearly 90 million followers already. Donald Trump is back. Ra- stay there, Paul, around the panel on the Sue. Well, um, I was just hoping that there'd be an even larger staff walk out at Twitter and it would collapse. But it is the problem when you've got one of your major news sources in the world owned privately, in this case, uh, you know, by a megalomaniac like Elon Musk. And there's effectively no rules or regulations. He can really, he can do whatever he likes. And the only power that we have is as consumers. So we can choose not to go on his platform. And hopefully that's what people will do. David? I think there's a real dilemma for Donald Trump because he famously has set up his own social media platform. I think it's called Truth Social. Mm. And does he now abandon that effectively? For if he goes back to Twitter, Truth Social is going to collapse. So he has to decide what to do. And look, my personal view of Trump's fairly well known. He's a sociopathic toddler. But... When you have the Ayatollah Khomeini on there and you don't have the guy 
campaigning to be the president of the United States, a former president, you do have to say, look, it's not necessarily being consistent. So, well, yeah. that was exactly my thought, Paul. Can I just jump in there and actually just bring that sheet that home to you? Um, uh, w- there are others on Twitter that perhaps deserve the same um, forensic um, spotlight than Donald Trump. Hundreds of thousands. Paul. Yeah, look, I, th- I think that it's going to be um, really interesting because the other thing that happened was on Friday, uh, Musk tweeted that the new Twitter policy is freedom of speech, not freedom of reach. So, you know, there's going to be a, a, a really broad range of voices on Twitter. Um, but first of all, you know, those that are going to hear those voices uh, are going to be based on who's actually interested in following. So, you know, probably most people in New Zealand aren't going to be following uh, Donald Trump, would be my guess. So even though technically, yes, he's on the platform, um, but at this stage, you know, as was mentioned, um, you know, he, he may not, you know, even re- reappear on Twitter anyway. And that's been suggested uh, but, too, that he may not actually, uh, in fact, someone says he, w- he, says he would not go back on Twitter. Just briefly, Paul, in the 60 seconds we have, Mastodon, yes or no? Oh, look, it's got about 7 million users at the moment, which is incredible. That's sort of, you know, 10, 10 20 times growth in the, in the past few weeks. Uh, I'm just not sure it's going to get to anywhere near Twitter's, Twitter's scale. But, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a watch the space thing, and it just depends how badly, uh, you know, Musk plays things on, on Twitter and uh, whether people vote with their feet. But I think the, the issue with, with people leaving is a lot of people have got a good base of followers right. there and it's expensive or, you know, it costs them in some way uh, in terms of their reach if they you, from the platform. We've got to go, mate, but uh, kia ora. All right, a uh, bit of the riddle for David Farrar and Sue Kishmi. You've both been wonderful this afternoon. Thank you. I'm Wallace Chapman. Checkpoint is next. See you 3.45 tomorrow, Tuesday.